Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Robin Muir to tell us all about her book titled The Disney Princess Phenomenon, a feminist analysis published by Bristol University Press in 2023. This is a fascinating book. This does a lot of exploratory work to map out the Disney princess phenomenon and what it's doing over time in a lot of different areas of Disney. And quite a useful critique of this commercial, the commercial aspects, the cultural aspects to help us understand what the messages are from the, about Disney princesses, from Disney princesses, um, why there's some sort of uneven messaging. Anyway, before I get too far into uh, the book, obviously, I'm very pleased that Robin, you're here to actually tell us all the real expertise from it, from the book, rather than just me fangirling about it. So thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Before we dive into the book, um, obviously I've had to rein myself back in a little bit already. Would you mind introducing yourself to our audience and explaining what brought you to write this book? Yeah, of course. Uh, Yep. So hi, everyone. My name's uh, Robin Muir and I'm a lecturer um, in media and communication in the Department of Sociology at the University of Surrey. I'm also the founder and director of the Disney Culture and Society Research Network, uh, which is an international and interdisciplinary network that brings together Disney scholars from all over the world and across all sorts of disciplines. Um, And I mean, there's a I guess there's a pretty easy answer as to why I wrote this book. And I guess it was the most logical next step for me to do. Um, Because in the introduction, I talk about how I've kind of been entrenched in Disney culture for, I mean, as long as I remember. Um, I always ask my mum, you know, what was the first film that I watched when I was a when I was a child and she says that it was Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, my my granddad, or I called him my adat. Um, that was the first film that I watched as a young, young baby. Um, and I have just been entrenched in Disney culture ever since, and specifically Disney princesses. I mean, I, oh gosh, I had the pencil cases, the lunch boxes, the bags, the, the Disney princess costumes, the shoes, the wands, the tiaras, any anything that was princess that I could get my hands on, um, or you know, rather my mum could get her hands on. Um, I, you know, I I had it and I and I wanted it. Um and so I think when I was doing my my first degree, which was a politics degree, I'd kind of settled on doing my undergraduate dissertation on something to do with kind of international relations but then it was 2013 and I went to see Frozen and I remember sitting in in the cinema with my husband well he wasn't my husband at the time he was my boyfriend but he's my husband now uh shout out to my husband for all of his amazing support um (laughs) and I, I watched this film and I was like, wow, this is just so different from anything that they've done before. And I came out of the cinema and I just was talking out loud and I said, 
to him, wouldn't it be wild if I did my dissertation on this? And he was like, what? And I said, I could do a dissertation on how the representation of women has changed over time. And he was like, I mean, yeah, I guess you could like go for it. And, you know, I, I went in to my personal tutor the next day and said, you know, hey, I've got this idea. Let's do it. And she was like, yeah, let's do it. Um, other people were not as encouraging as that. Um, some people were kind of like, that's not political and that's not, you know, a, 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 I don't know, a, a rigorous area of study or, you know, it's just a film. It's just a kid's film. So it doesn't matter, you know, what's political about that. And so I think one of the reasons that I wrote this book is because from that undergraduate dissertation, I went on to complete a PhD on the Disney princesses. And this book is based on that PhD. But I also, I feel, wrote that book for people like me, the people who have been told your research is not political enough, or your research is not this enough or that enough, um, when actually it is. And I'm really lucky that I work at an amazing institution that really champions my research um, and I'll forever be grateful uh, to Surrey and my department for championing me in this way but I know that not everybody is as lucky as that sometimes so I wrote this book to provide a, an updated foundational explanation of the princesses and how I term them as the phenomenon but I also wrote the book to show just how important doing research like this is and what it can mean, not just to us as academics, but also to consumers, to audience members, um, because I wanted that book to be as accessible as possible so that anybody can read it. Um, so yeah, that's why I wrote the book. <laughs> Thank you for taking us through that. Um, I'm really pleased that you talked about that kind of idea of like what counts as political enough and how do we assess that? Because it's one of the points you make early on in the book, and I think it's an incredibly powerful one. So kind of on that topic, going a bit deeper into it in the book, you say, quote, the princesses are the political. Can you take us through this? Yeah, of course. Um, so the princesses are the political is based on the personal is the political, which is a, um, a second wave feminist term that is kind of trying to centre um, women's experiences um, as political ones. Um, as we know, the private and the public sphere are still to this day um, kept quite separate. Um, and, you know, matters of the private sphere are for the, of the privacy of the home and therefore shouldn't enter into the public sphere. But actually, that's not the case, um, as, as many feminist um, scholars have shown, and especially as feminism has grown uh, to be more intersectional, because that was also a really big issue with earlier feminism. They were not very diverse when it actually came to, to women and supporting women. It was a particular type of privileged women that were being supported. And I think that's really important to acknowledge. Um, so I think the reason why I wanted to make this statement that the princesses are the political is because the things that we watch and engage with growing up do contribute to shape who we are 
as a person and what our beliefs are, what our opinions are, the things that we learn, the things that we see about ourselves and the things that we see about other people. And all of that is political because it has a significant impact then on how groups of people are treated in society. So for me, the princesses of the political was all about reframing the study of Disney princesses and, you know, wider kind of uh, children's media, uh, but also women's media as well of this is an important area of research to engage with and analyze and talk about because this is contributing to the shaping of gender, to the shaping of identity. Um, And many people have said, you know, oh, it's just a children's film, so we don't need to worry about it. But actually, I think we do. Um, And it's not necessarily just worry about it. We just need to engage with it and we need to use it as a platform so that we can have really important discussions about representation and diversity and and gender and and ethnicity and, and disability And also, you know, even just things like relationships and friendships and how people treat one another. Films can be used as a way to make a platform for those important discussions. And that is kind of bringing that private sphere element into the public sphere where it firmly belongs. Mm, Very important, I think, intervention there. So I'm glad you started the book with it and we've started our discussion with it as well. Thinking about ensuring that we can bring these films into conversation, um, it's obviously because it has not been something that we've necessarily had conversations about as much before, kind of figuring out how to think about these films in a more critical, in a more analytical way is a question in and of itself. So would you mind introducing us to your film analysis framework a little bit um, as you've kind of you've answered this question you figured this out so could you tell us a little bit about um, maybe sort of ways of thinking about these films yeah of course and I mean I think it's really important to start with that there's been a lot of work on the Disney princesses and how kind of gender has been represented how ethnicity is represented how disability is is represented and there's a lot of brilliant work out there that I thoroughly enjoyed reading as I was doing my PhD, but also kind of um, writing this book. But something that I felt that I needed, I'm one of those people, I really like a system. I like a system that says, this is how you can try and approach something, but I want it to be transferable. And I want it to be easy to use and easily kind of adapted to anything that you want to look at. And that's why I ended up creating my film analysis framework, because what it does is it allows you to look at any medium. I mean, it could be Disney princesses, but it could be something from Star Wars or Marvel or even outside the Disney um, company. You could use this to look at any kind of media franchise or any kind of um, media if you want to look at representation. And I like to think that it can also be adapted so that you know, in in my case, I was looking at femininity, but that's not the only thing that this, you know, you can switch out some words and all of a sudden you are looking at masculinity or you're looking at disability or you are looking at class. Um, Because I wanted to make it easy and transferable and adaptable so that there is, if people want it, there's a structure out there that will help them to kind of 
look at how something has changed over time. So for me, I was explicitly looking at femininity. Um, And I think one of the most important things to note is that this was very much kind of inspired by, you know, methodological work that's already been done in popular culture, in media and communication, and especially in feminist media studies. Um, So this is kind of like an amalgamation of all of these different kind of fields and and just put into kind of like a bit of a a table almost uh, frameworks to to help uh, people, you know, work through it. Um, So one of the, one of the first things that I always look at whenever I'm analyzing a film, and this is the first kind of step to the framework is what is the time period that the images were created? Cause this is something that, you know, we as scholars will always need to look at, um, Films are often products of their time and will be shaped in a particular way based on societal norms of that time. So understanding what life was like for women at the time that, you know, each of these waves of films were created uh, was was very important. Um, uh, The big question was always, what's the image of woman? So how was the princess portrayed in her appearance and her speech? You know, what kind of actions is she undertaking and in what way? What are her movements like? Are they really graceful, like Snow White and Cinderella and Aurora? Or are they a little bit more clumsy, like Mulan? Um, And what does that mean for kind of, you know, the representation of, of women and how that changes? Then I wanted to move on to, okay, well, how is the image of woman described by others? So how do other characters talk about or to the princess? How do they describe her? How do they treat her? Um, And what does that mean for our understanding of the representation of this princess? Um, Another important thing I thought needed to be addressed was how do people discuss the situation or the well-being or the future of the woman? Are they talking about her as if she has no agency in that situation are they making assumptions about what she wants uh do they listen to her own wishes do they listen to her at all in any of these situations um and that's quite important to kind of think about in terms of how femininity is being kind of engaged with in in these films Another one is how often is the woman featured, especially as the film about if the film is about her. So does she have a lot of screen time? I'm looking at you, Aurora. I think she had about 18 minutes. <laughs> it wasn't good for her. Um, and if so, what is she doing? I mean, Aurora, she was sleeping. She's <laughs> sleeping the, the whole time. She was basically sleeping that whole time, bless her. Like she didn't have a lot going on for her for her agency but she didn't have a lot of you know positive structure either so you know there we are um but thinking about okay well how much screen time does she does she get what is she doing does she get to speak a lot is she kind of in the background what does that mean um and what roles do women have to play in the film like are they driving the narrative are they able to exercise agency are they what kind of activities are they actually doing are they cleaning or are they you know engaging in war like what are the kind of and that that they're quite big um that's quite a big spectrum isn't it but you know are they what are they doing and what's the kind of cultural significance of that as well because of course like seeing somebody clean isn't a bad thing it's just if you only ever see women clean regularly across mediums 
it starts to become a bit of a pattern. And that's kind of the point that I'm trying to make here, where if the activity is repeated enough, it does start to form a norm. And the way that we then look at womanhood and, and women, it can then contribute to the norm that's being created by wider society as well. So then finally, I asked the question, what do these images suggest about women? Um, so what are the wider kind of cultural implications of portraying women in this way? And I think that's where the pattern thing really comes in, because again, like seeing a woman in a relationship is nice. Like lots of women are in relationships. I am in a relationship. Um, I am also a feminist. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. Um, but a big difference for the Disney princess is that, is that so often we see them enter the relationship and then their story just ends. And so that's kind of like the happy ending and then we're, we're done. That's it. Like we, we don't know if, if, if Belle got her great adventure in the great wide somewhere, we don't know if she did that. We don't know whether Ariel find out, found out about the fire or not. We don't know because the film just ends with their relationship. And again, when those patterns are created, they are contributing to these wider commentaries and constructions of femininity. Um, so thinking about what those implications are and, and the film framework is designed so that anyone can use it and it doesn't matter what context they're trying to use it in. It might be that, you know, you're a student and you want to analyse um, some films for your dissertation. You can use that framework to help you to analyse it. It might be that you're a scholar and you want to start to write a journal article on the representation um, in a particular film. And again, you can you can use that to conduct a textual analysis. It might be that you're a parent or um, a caregiver and or a family member and you want a new way to critically engage with the media that you and your children are watching together, but you don't quite know necessarily where to start. And these are some of the questions that you can kind of ask yourself as you're, as you're watching. It might be that you're a fan and you want to engage in a critical way. And again, these are questions that you can ask yourself um, so that is kind of the film analysis framework in terms of how you use it. I mean, for me with the Disney princess films, I watched them chronologically because I was looking at the cultural history of each film, but that did also allow me to map out what changes took place within each film. Um, so I took extensive notes um, between each films, making uh, down quotes and um, identifying particular movements or the way that a princess would be treated. And then once I kind of identified what those different kind of characteristics were from each of those kinds of notes, I started to notice patterns, which was it, which allowed me to basically cluster the princesses into waves. Um, so, and I know that you might want to ask me a little bit about that. So I'm <laughs> going to stop there. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, no, thank you for taking us through um, the framework. I think it is really helpful to have a system for this sort of thing. And having read it, very much agree that it does have these multiple possible users, right? There's the academic one, but there is really the idea of kind of, hang on, what films do I maybe want to show the child that I'm caring for? Or if I'm an adult revisiting my childhood 
um sort of films you know how can i think about them as an adult there, there's a lot of different ways to use this so thank mm. you for taking us through that but yes i am going to ask you about the waves <laughs> um so you do after doing all of this analysis you split the disney princess films into five waves um that's obviously methodologically always really tricky right how do you decide where a wave stops and starts could you take us through a bit of your thinking on that yeah of course so for me it was about the shared characteristics. So once I'd done the textual analysis using the film framework, I started to identify patterns where princesses shared particular kind of characteristics. And I know that we're kind of going to talk about the um, waves in a little bit more depth, um, but in terms of clustering them, it started to, you started to see similar characteristics. So the first wave consists of Snow White and Cinderella and Aurora. So that's kind of like a 1937 to 1959 timeline. And they shared characteristics of being domestic, being passive, being kind of victims and desiring a romantic relationship. And they were characteristics that were regularly repeated throughout each of those princess films. With the second wave, this was actually a really interesting one because there is an anomaly in the second wave. And it's that of Ilonwi of the Black Cauldron, who actually, because there is a difference between the Disney princess phenomenon, which is what I call them, versus the Disney princess franchise, which is the franchise that Disney have created. And Ilonwi of the Black Cauldron um, is not in the Disney princess franchise, but she is in the phenomenon because she is a princess. And one of the things that I wanted to do with my book is explore these forgotten princesses. Obviously, I can't say exactly why they've not been included in the franchise because I'm not privy to that information but it was certainly interesting as the research went on that the excluded princesses do share some interesting qualities um and it's interesting that they weren't included and there are many reasons as to why that might be which I do kind of talk about in my book mm -hmm. so Ilonwi we wasn't was an anomaly because whilst she did share the loss that the second wave um characteristic so she was assertive and she she was quite rebellious and brave and to an extent her dreams kind of were lost in happily ever after a little bit the film ends with her and taron kind of walking off into the sunset holding hands together um, we have no idea where she's going after this, presumably off somewhere with Taryn. Um, but she also demonstrates leadership. And so she kind of had elements of the first wave, elements of the third wave, and elements of the second. Uh, so she was kind of an, an anomaly in that instance. But she had the majority of her characteristics remained in, in the second with, with Ariel and Belle and Jasmine. So these women were very assertive and they knew what they wanted and they would they wanted they would do what it took to get it to an extent. They were quite rebellious and brave, but it would always seem that when a romantic relationship was introduced, all of a sudden those those previous dreams 
we're kind of lost in that happily ever after. So Ariel wants to explore the human world. And it's not until Eric that she kind of gets the kind of springboard to, to get in to do it, but she has to give up her voice in order to do so. So she doesn't really get to ask the questions that she wanted to ask. And then she ends the film and she's married to Prince Eric and then that's it. Like, we don't know. And that's why I'm incredibly grateful for the live action Little Mermaid, which I thought was absolutely fantastic. Because even though Ariel still gives up her voice, we get a narrative from her, we get her inner monologue, and we get to see her exploring the human world that she's wanted to learn about. And we get to watch her bond with Eric because they are interested in the same things. And they they want to explore and she gets the answers to the questions that she was asking. And I think that adaption was, was brilliant because it, it gave her the agency back that she didn't get in the animated film. Mm. Um, so that's kind of the, the second wave there. Now the third wave consists of Pocahontas and Mulan and a potentially more unknown princess called Kida. Fun fact, I named my dog after Kida because she's one of my absolute favorite princesses. Uh, Kida is from a film called Atlantis, the Lost Empire. And if you haven't seen it and you're a Disney fan, I would absolutely recommend. Um, so these women are also assertive they communicate, they negotiate their leaders and they do desire romantic relationships. And there's an interesting kind of way that that's negotiated with the third wave because these women are not messing around. Like they are driving their own narrative. They are sorting out problems that are facing them and they just get straight into it. They're not relying on anyone, not that it's bad to rely on people, but they are working with teams. They are working individually. They are getting things done no messing around the interesting change with the active leaders that's what the third wave are are called in comparison to the second wave who were kind of like the lost dreamers is that at the end when the romantic relationship is um presented to them they essentially they kind of have to make a choice apart from kida so pocahontas she has to choose between going to England with John Smith, which is historically inaccurate and completely romanticizes colonialism. Um, so she has to choose between going to England with John Smith or remaining um, with her people in uh, in her own home. And she says, I'm going to stay with my people because I'm needed here. She gives up her romantic relationship. Mulan, in the same way, gets offered a leadership position at the end after she saves China because she literally saves China single-handedly because she's amazing. Um, And she gets offered, you know, a a leadership position on the emperor's kind of council. And she says, no, she wants to return to her family. It was all about kind of bringing honor to her family. And then her, you know, suggested love interest, Li Shang, he rocks up at the end. Grandma Fa's like, stay forever it's obviously implied that a romantic relationship is going to ensue and again you've kind of just got these choices here that both of these women are making Pogon just chooses leadership so she can't have the relationship Mulan chooses to stay at home with her family where a future relationship is implied because that's you know the way that another way that she can kind of bring honor to her family other than literally saving China um 
and she doesn't go for the leadership um, position. So the way that that's being navigated, it's very much giving that women can't have it all narrative. And then there's Kida, because Kida becomes the queen of Atlantis at the end of her film. I'm sorry, that's a really big spoiler for anyone that was planning on watching this. <laughs> um, but Kida becomes the leader at the end of, of her film. And it's beautiful because at no point is this choice presented to her. Like the choice is actually presented to Milo, who is her kind of um, her man love interest. Um, and it's Milo that has to choose. He has to choose between returning to America, a hero having discovered the lost empire of Atlantis or staying with you know, the love of his life. And he chooses to stay. The The option isn't even on the table for Kida. Kida, it's assumed, of course, Kida is, you know, going to be queen of Atlantis and is going to lead. There's no way that she's going to be doing anything else. And I found that very refreshing. But interestingly, Kida is not in the Disney Princess franchise. Um, so that's kind of the the third wave. Then we kind of move into the fourth wave. And again, they're shared characteristics. So this is uh, Tiana and Rapunzel. They're both assertive. They're both very determined. They each have a dream. Tiana wants to open her restaurant. Rapunzel wants to leave her tower and see the floating lights. There is still that introduction of a relationship. And that actually then kind of builds into this kind of self-sacrificing nature, which is why I ended up calling them the sacrificing dreamers, because they did have a specific dream and they used their assertive nature and their determination to try and achieve it. But then they also knowingly sacrificed their dream for their desire of a romantic relationship. So Tiana gives up her human body, her dream of opening a restaurant so she can remain a frog with Naveen. Rapunzel gives up her freedom to save Flynn Rider's life. There is some nuance there. I totally get it. Like, if someone was stabbed in front of me, I know that we'd all be in a similar position. But it's annoying that the narrative had to kind of be made in that way. And I kind of get into that a little bit more in the book. It is more complex than how I'm discussing it more briefly now. So in this sense, both women are rewarded for their sacrifice with their newly desired romantic relationship and their dream. But it's just that the woman had to sacrifice her original dream so that she could achieve it. So this kind of wave very much suggested that the princesses kind of had to change their priorities after a love interest arrived, actively make a choice to sacrifice their dream for their love interest, rather than just kind of forget it like the second wave princesses. And then finally, we have the fifth wave, who I call the innovative leaders. And this is Merida and Anna and Elsa and Moana. Now, they also share um, qualities of assertiveness and leadership in the same way as, as many previous uh, waves. But they introduce something new. They introduce female support and this was really a big change for the Disney princesses because many times these Disney princesses don't have mothers, they have evil stepmothers, or they don't necessarily have any friends at all. I'm looking at you, Cinderella, 
bless you. I mean, she had animal friends, but, you know, no actual human friends. Not quite the um, same thing. So this, this idea of introducing kind of platonic female relationships was was really important because it showed it showed a shift about how they went about things and there's also a real lack of romantic relationships in this wave merida literally turns her mum into a bear so that she doesn't have to go through with an arranged marriage like that is how desperate she is elsa not even interested it doesn't even get mentioned anna of course starts out with the gross hands who we all hate because he's the worst um and then ends up in the most kind of positive representation of a heterosexual relationship that i've ever seen in a disney princess film with christoph who is the best we love christoph we hate hans he's the worst and then moana again like elsa it's just it's not even mentioned it's just not even relevant and again it kind of goes back to some complexity and i i recently spoken to a few news outlets to talk about the more the more recent snow white um live action adaptation that's coming out in 2024 and some of rachel zegler's comments and and gal gadot's comments about how there isn't a prince and snow white's not going to be rescued by the prince and there isn't really a romance and some people are kind of you know not very happy about that and i think it's, it, I don't think it's that people are saying we don't want romance at all. That's not true. Everyone, you know, most people like a good romance. Some, one of my favourite film genres is a rom-com, you know. I, I love a rom-com. Give me Legally Blonde. Like, love it. Absolutely love it. But I just don't need it all the time. So, like, it's nice and almost refreshing when there's a film that doesn't involve romance. And I think that's kind of the point that I'm making with the fifth wave there because this kind of these changes and the the nuance that we're starting to see as these waves kind of go I think really kind of show the complexity of being a woman and what that means because we are all different and that's good um and I think being able to show that on screen is really important Absolutely. No, thank you for taking us through um, those categories and helping us understand the differences between the sets of princesses. I'm curious, especially, or at least as a start, um, between the first and second wave, because in a lot of ways they're quite similar, mm-hmm. um, but some of what was happening in society at the same time was similar, but some of it was kind of changing as we got more waves of feminism so kind of can you to what extent do we see similarities between the first and second wave in in what in what aspects can we look to what's happening in wider society to explain those continuities or is there something else going on here when looking at those two in comparison yeah so i think the first thing that i'll say is I use the term waves very deliberately because as you'll have heard, as I've kind of been talking through all of these different waves, some of the similar ones, you know, relationships, assertiveness, leadership, they do pop up across. And that's why I wanted to choose the term waves because it's kind of representing how it's not just a complete linear change where something's going continually up and up and up and up. There, 
they move back and forward. And I think with the first wave and the second wave, I mean, they share this idea of the romantic relationship. Um, I think that's the real big thing between them. Um, because Snow White and Cinderella and Aurora, they didn't have a lot of agency at the time. And we kind of saw in the cultural history of kind of what was happening at that time, this was a time of war where women were being asked, uh, and the cultural history that I discuss in my book is, is American cultural history. So I'm explicitly talking about America here. Um, and I would like to say I'm not a historian by any means, um, but when we're looking at kind of how what women were being asked to do at that time, which was, you know, right. Okay. Step in. The men are going to war. You've got to step in at home. Let's go. Okay. And those women did that. And then the war was over and men came home and wanted their jobs back. And it very much kind of turned into a, okay, thank you so much. Um, but yeah, please return to what you were doing before. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Um, and so I, it didn't really surprise me that the the way that, you know, these women were being represented as being very domestic, as wanting these, you know, glorious romantic relationships and being, you know, swept off their feet, walking into the sunset with their new bow in hand. Um, that didn't really surprise me. And I think when they started to move into the second wave, I mean, there was a long gap. There was a long, long gap, you know, nearly a 30 year gap between the first and the second wave. And we'd had a number of kind of, you know, changes in cultural history at that point, especially for women. Um, but it was very much a post-feminist era where it was kind of deemed, you know, oh, well, you know, women, they, they have, it's all good now you know, everything's okay, all is well, you can vote now, you know, these are all these different things that are kind of happening. And I think these princesses really kind of, the second wave really bring that kind of post-feminist era alive in the way that they were very rebellious and they were brave. And then all of a sudden this romantic relationship is introduced and there's this reminder of, oh, okay, no, no, this is kind of our our purpose here. Our, our dreams are kind of lost in this happily ever after. So I think the key difference between the two is definitely kind of the, the way that the relationship is used. In the first wave, the women desire the romantic relationship in the second wave, the women aren't even thinking about the romantic relationship until it's introduced to them, almost as a way of kind of policing the the, the rebellious and the bravery and the assertiveness, because we don't see those traits really once that romantic relationship has been established, or at least we see them considerably less. Hmm. I think that that's fascinating, especially, as you said, given the gap in time between the first and second wave um, and does really, I think, prove how important it is in your framework to bring in what's happening in the outside society to understand um, the princesses and what's kind of being done with them. I think that, I mean, that one answer already proves the entire point really of the framework. Um, But obviously the framework can do even more than that. So if we think about the third wave, 
thinking about the time point, in some ways it's even more surprising then to see how that the third wave does seem to be different from the second wave, even though time-wise they don't have that big gap. So why do you think it is that there we do see a difference, even though the films, if we look at kind of when they came out, are actually really close together? Yeah, thank you. That's such an interesting question because, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and it's something that I put out in my book. Like when I actually get to the third wave, I think I say something like, you know, not really a lot of, you know, much, not really much had changed because, you know, they were created in such short kind of successions. Um, and that does make a real, real difference. So I think in terms of kind of the the key differences, there was a little bit more kind of representation in the public sphere. There was some more legislation that enabled more kind of like women's rights. Um, excuse me, I'm going to sneeze. Oh, no, it's passed. Um, <laughs> and so I think one of the big differences will have been how Disney wanted to approach the princesses moving forward. And it can also depend on this, who has seats at the table, right? So I'm not privy to the decisions that they made and why they made the decisions that they did. But I think consumers do have a lot of power in terms of demonstrating what they want because businesses do have to listen to that if they want to continue to make money um and i think pocahontas and, and mulan and kida were interesting examples of that because there is some complexity here um pocahontas was the first native american princess and the film itself is incredibly problematic um it completely romanticizes colonialism it whitewashes history it portrays english colonialism as merely a misunderstanding and two different cultures not getting on and that is not what happened in any way shape or form um and there are issues there are issues with that and with mulan again there are issues with how Chinese culture was represented in that film. And that's something that I go into a little bit more with my book. But I think what we started to see from the 90s is that more representation was being asked for. But of course, not all representation is good representation. And I think any company needs to be incredibly thoughtful about how they choose to represent particular communities. And I think that also means that we need people with seats at the table behind the camera when stories are being developed, when characters are being developed, when they're being drawn, when, when they're being designed. And I think that's something that we kind of need to see a little bit more from from many different um media conglomerates and studios mm, definitely i think that's an incredibly important point given that these third wave films do show a difference um from the first and second wave 
I was interested to read in the book that the fourth wave films actually seem to go back a bit, almost mm. regressing really to more of the characteristics in the second and first wave. Why? Yeah, so when it came to the fourth wave, it really surprised me because at that point with the first and the second and the third, they were just kind of building on each other, like slowly but surely. And, you know, the, the start of both of those films, you were like, yes, determination, assertiveness, dreams, excellent. And then it's just right at the end where it all just kind of like drops off a, off a cliff. And I don't know why they did that. And I wish I did. Mm. Um, I think to an extent, there is this idea of, well, it's the it's the Disney princess happily ever after and the Disney princess happily ever after is, is, is a relationship. Um, and that's kind of what you really, really have seen in, in the first and the second and even the, the third wave, um, apart from Pocahontas and Kida. So I think, I think it's kind of thinking about number one, how do we create this balance between having a really strong and independent princess yet still introducing this tried and tested happily ever after element? And I'm just not sure that the balance was right in those two particular films. And I kind of talk about that a little bit more. I found it really frustrating that in The Princess and the Frog, I mean, even at the end, you know, Tiana pops out, she says, no, I love Naveen. I want to be with Naveen. And Charlotte's like, okay, well, I'll just kiss you anyway. Like, I'll just fix it. And that, I think that would have been fine. Like, if she'd have just kissed, you know, Naveen, and then they both turn human, and then Tiana gets both of those things. And that's great. That's great. Her And her friend helped her do it. And I see no issue with that storyline, but they really seem to want to go down this route of, you know, Mama Odie's telling Tiana she needs to dig a little deeper. And actually the, the thing that she needs to dig a little deeper on is that she should have a romantic relationship and, you know, not worry as hard about this. Not even worry as hard, but there was very much this implication of if you just, if you and Naveen fall in love and kiss, then they'll, you'll become human again and then you can have your restaurant. But I'm kind of like, well... I feel like the restaurant should come first because that was there the longest. So, mm. you know, and then with Rapunzel entangled, I think it was, it was a hard one because that is really complex. I mean, yes, she's only known Eugene for three days. And when somebody is, you know, attacked like that in front of you, of course you want to do anything that you can to be able to, help them but I think completely giving her you know making her make that choice to basically give up her own freedom to save somebody else on the one hand yes is brave but on the other just puts her right back into that kind of like victim because then it's Flynn like Flynn is the one that kind of saves the day in that aspect because he cuts her hair Mother Gothel ages at a drastic rate and crumbles into, you know, dust. And then, you know, he and he kind of sacrifices 
himself in that sense so it's it's very complex in terms of how they kind of approached it but it always kind of resulted in Rapunzel either not getting what she wanted or being in this kind of victimhood that she couldn't really escape from and luckily it was slightly redeemed by Rapunzel then being able to save Eugene with her powers but I just again I think a different ending could have potentially continued that wave on an upward trajectory rather than at such a regression. Hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Given that regression then, um, it seems perhaps even more surprising than you described um, going in and watching Frozen and going, hang on, this is not like other films, that the fifth wave princesses, Merida, Moana, um, Elsa and Anna and Frozen are really quite different than the regressive fourth wave ones, but also different from the third wave i mean they're really there's more complexity there there's just kind of a bunch of extra pieces going on with these fifth wave princesses why do you think kind of it it feels like they did different things but also more things in a way why do you think that is i think there started to be again another shift in culture and in what was happening to women i mean you know a me too movement um highlighting more women's issues and i think that definitely contributed because there were a lot of women that worked on these particular projects um of the fifth wave and i also think you know that kind of goes back to my you know when more when more people of different backgrounds and from different communities have seats at the table, I think you just get so much better storytelling. And I think the fifth wave really represents that Mm. Um, because this was a really powerful wave in terms of the way that they approach that female support, the way that they remove the aspects of the romantic relationships. So I think it was kind of a combination of, you know, these cultural changes that have been happening and what audiences are wanting, but also who is having these kinds of seats at the table to be able to make those changes. Mm-hmm. I'd love to think about something you mentioned right at the beginning of the interview, and I think is an incredibly important point, and I'm really glad that your book deals with it, because of course, it's one thing to analyze the films themselves, right? And think about the messages that anyone watching them, particularly children, have at home if they're watching on TV, at the cinema. But of course, that's not the only environment where these films are imparting messages to children. And you mentioned right at the beginning, the pencil cases, the backpacks, the lunchboxes, where these are ways that children especially can engage with particular princesses, quite literally, like all day, every day. Um, which is obviously really impactful. So I appreciate it in the book that you look at things like merchandise. Which princesses and waves are the most dominant when we think about it through that lens of the most available things for a child to take home? Yeah, thank you. Another great question. Um, I think... So this is where it gets a little bit interesting. And this is where the differences between the Disney princess phenomenon versus the Disney princess franchise become interesting. 
because actually, if we are looking at it from a waves perspective, so from a Disney princess phenomenon perspective, um, the fifth wave is the one that dominates the, the share of the merchandise. Then it's the first wave, then it's the second wave, and then it's the fourth wave, and then it's the third wave, who are the least marketed. However, a big thing to remember about the fifth wave is that two out of four of those princesses are Anna and Elsa, who are not officially part of the Disney princess franchise because they haven't received kind of like a, a big coronation. They're starting, Disney are starting to tease it, um, but there's nothing kind of official that's been announced yet. So actually, if we look at the Disney princess franchise products, as soon as we remove kind of like the likes of your Anna and Elsa, it's actually the only reason why those fifth wave princesses are so popular is because of Anna and Elsa. As soon as they're removed, it's the first and second wave princesses that become the most popular and the most kind of merchandised. And I think there are a couple of reasons why that might be. And I think a lot of it does come from this idea of kind of like princess culture. It is about, you know, the dress and the shoes and the tiara and the and the bags and, you know, wanting that princess ball gown, which, you know, let's be honest, the first and the second wave can absolutely provide um, in in ways that are different to kind of, you know, your, your fifth wave, especially if you're excluding Anna and Elsa. And I think something that was done incredibly well with Frozen is that they managed to package this more feminist and empowering storyline and characters, but with those ball gowns. Because let's be honest, like, I'm a feminist, okay? I would love a ball gown, and that does not make me any less feminist, okay? And I think, this is slightly off topic, but I think we're starting to kind of see this come around a lot more, Um especially when I'm thinking about the Barbie movie and how femininity was represented and how it, it, they never created this, you can't be a feminist and love pink or do all of these kinds of things. And I think for so long in princess culture, because they get such a bad rap and it's, oh God, it's pink this and it's pink that and it's, dresses and ball gowns and so on and so forth. And don't get me wrong, yeah, there are totally activities that are not appropriate for a ball gown. Understood. Totally get that. That's why I really liked Frozen 2, because Anna and Elsa both got weather and activity-appropriate outfits to go on their quest. However, you can still have a ball gown and still be a queen and still be a leader and still be assertive. And those things aren't mutually exclusive. And I think that packaging of those two things were done incredibly well with Anna and Elsa. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. And that's a really interesting, we talked earlier about kind of trying to balance between the different things and some of the earlier films didn't quite achieve that. And it's interesting to see it in this case where they did. The other aspect, um, 
beyond merchandise, the kind of the ability to take home the princesses, is of course being able to go visit the princesses, to be able to see them theoretically in real life at, for example, Disney theme parks, um, where there's all manner of princess things, including mm. literally actresses dressed up as the princesses who interact as them. So when you looked at the visibility and the promotion that the different princesses got within the theme parks, what did you find in terms of which princesses and waves were the most, I suppose, available, the most visible? And why do you think this is? So I think it depends on which park you go to. Um, So I was at Walt Disney World, where you can basically meet every single princess apart from Ilongwe and Kida. Um, Moana was a bit hit and miss, but the time that I went, I was able to meet her. Um, and I know that obviously since COVID, this has become a little bit more complex. Um, I know that, for example, there are still a few princesses that aren't back in the parks yet. But at the time that I went, it was pre-COVID-19. Um, so I was able to kind of meet all of them. I would say, so all of them are available. It was just interesting to see where they were available. Um, So for example, Cinderella and Tiana and Rapunzel, they all got their own princess fairy tale hall along with Elena of Avalor, who's a princess um, from the Disney Channel. Um, Whereas Belle and Jasmine and Aurora and Snow White, you could meet at Epcot. Moana, you could meet at a specific event. Uh, Ariel, you could meet in the Magic Kingdom. Pocahontas, oh, Mulan, you could also meet at Epcot. And Pocahontas, you could meet um, in Animal Kingdom. Some were harder to find than others. Pocahontas was, like, tucked so far away. She used to have her own meet and greet spot. And now they've, well, I don't really know what they're doing with her now um, because I don't think she's meeting yet. I'm not sure. But at the time, they tucked her so far away that like you wouldn't even know where to look for her unless you were actively searching for her. Whereas the others, like it's quite in your face, like where they are. So like, you know, when there's a princess there. So I felt that was quite interesting. Um, And I think... In terms of, though, when you're actually engaging with them, the actual biggest kind of common characteristic that I found was that of female support, which was really nice. Um, And Pocahontas and Mulan both talked about female support, which I just found really refreshing. Um, So it was nice to see how characters ultimately they do have to stay true to the character because that's the film, but it was nice to see that there are also ways that you can kind of build in some kind of future, you know, characteristics. Mm, Absolutely. I found that fascinating to think about, like the placement, you know, where are the princesses in the park and how easy is it to find them? And that Mm. really does reveal quite a lot. So one further question, I suppose, um, less, I guess the flip side of it, right? The idea of which princesses get the most visibility and promotion. Obviously, what about the ones that get the least So when you did this analysis, um, looking at the princesses that get the least support, kind of why do you think it's those princesses? And and what does this tell us about sort of which versions of femininity are being promoted over others? Mm. So 
The ones that seem to have the most coverage are kind of the first wave and the second wave, the fourth wave and the fifth wave, especially when it comes to kind of like Anna and Elsa. I think the princesses that receive the least, obviously Ilomwe and Kida get nothing. Like they're just not, they don't, there's no merchandise. They're not in the parks. I think sometimes you can meet Kida on like special occasions, but that's it. It's my dream to meet her at the parks. Um, but you, there's nothing there. Sometimes, and again, I'm not privy to this information. I don't work for the Walt Disney Company. I, I don't represent their, you know, strategy in any way. I think, but I think there are a couple of inferences that we can make. Number one, Black Cauldron and Atlantis, The Lost Empire, weren't the most popular films that they've made. So if they weren't popular as films, would they be popular as princesses? If that doesn't work, I guess they're not in the franchise, you know? So there's that there's that element there. Neither of them have a particular kind of like hardcore princess outfit in the, in the way that Tiana does, for example, or in the way that Belle does. Um, if I think about the later princesses like uh, Merida and Moana, what's interesting about Moana is that there was a real big hype for her, and there still is, but she still doesn't get as much merchandise Um from my analysis in the book as, as other princesses. Um, I think that is starting to improve. And obviously they've got the the journey of water coming to Epcot um, where Tafiti is, is being featured, which I think is really cool. I know that Moana is um, now greeting people at uh, Magic Kingdom, I think, which is really exciting. So we're starting to kind of like see some improvements there because Moana is so loved by by consumers but I think when it comes to the likes of Pocahontas and Mulan I'm not sure why they're not getting the representation that they deserve I think on the one hand something that I do talk about in my book is that we do have to think about cultural appropriation um with Pocahontas and with Mulan you know wearing one of their costumes you know native american and and chinese culture is not a a costume that you can put on and and take off as you please um there needs to be you know understanding about you know where these cultures came from especially in the more problematic elements of the film um but those films were very popular um they they did well at box office and they're very strong women and whenever i talk to people you know about you know whenever i am talking to disney fans like so many people will say oh my gosh i love pocahontas i love mulan i love kida um and i think to an extent some of what's happened and i have started to see some improvements in their um in their representation in merchandise it is it is increasing it is improving not to the extent of the likes of cinderella and it could be that you know the likes of snow white cinderella aurora ariel bell jasmine they are like the iconic six princesses there's questions around who's been around longer there's definitely still questions around how these princesses are being packaged so you know neither Pocahontas nor Mulan have that big iconic ball gown being made and it could be that you know consumers want that princess 
dress, the glass slippers. So I think there's a lot of complex reasons why some princesses are more successful than others. And I do go into more depth in this in the book. Um, But I also can see that this is changing. And I think it's also changing because of Disney fans. If you go on Etsy or Redbubble or, you know, people are creating their own kind of businesses, creating, you know, products and and merchandise for these lost princesses you know before my last trip to disney i bought some kida mini ears and i also bought um a pocahontas um dress it was kind of like a peachy a peachy color and it just had you know like the the leaves from the colors of the wind it had that at the bottom um so it was just like a nice summer dress very like disney boundy you could pretty much wear it anywhere but it was just a little bit a little bit of pocahontas with me because she is my favorite princess um so i think fans are also starting to answer for the for the loss and you can kind of get your fix of your favorite princess elsewhere if you're not getting it from shop disney and i think that's definitely something there's something to be said about that Mm, very much so i'm glad you mentioned it um there's obviously so much more detail we could get into i'm sure you i mean i know for a fact uh, you could talk about any one of these princesses for ages and have so much detail and of course that's really where i'd point listeners to read the book to get all of this great detail if you're intrigued by what we've been discussing so far um but i do realize we've taken up rather a lot of your time so if i may ask just my final question um this book is thankfully available for people to go read which means it's off your desk is there anything you might be working on now or next whether or not it's a book whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like us to be aware of yes I am thank you so much for asking so um I am working on three different projects at the moment um the first project that I've been working on is about influencer culture so it's looking at how girls across the life course engage with influencers um and how what those opportunities and risks are when it comes to engaging with influencer culture whether that's online on social media or through films and you know through video games and things like that um so what's come out of that um we'll be launching a toolkit on uh that will help uh girls and educators and um families and carers um to navigate influencer culture in the digital age so that's one of the projects Um, I am also currently working on my Dream Big Princess project that has been funded by the British Academy and Leverhulme Small Grant, where I'm looking at how um, people across the life course engage with the Disney princess phenomenon. So I'm going to be exploring more of the fandom in this element, looking at, you know, how identity and ideas around gender have been formed through the Disney princesses and how people um, make meaning from the Disney princess phenomenon and how that changes over time and then finally um, I am working on a project uh, with a colleague called Rebecca Rowe um, who's also a Disney scholar and we are together we are looking at how the representation of femininity um, in the Disney princess phenomenon is adapted in the live action adaptation so we're kind of comparing the animated films to the live action adaptations and how you know potential issues uh, have been redressed and how storylines have changed um so they are the three things uh that i'm working on right now and i'm having an absolute 
ball of a time doing it. <laughs> that's great to hear. No, that sound very exciting. So thank you for sharing that with us. While you're off working on those projects, of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, The Disney Princess Phenomenon, A Feminist Analysis, published by Bristol University Press in 2023. Robin, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Miranda. And thanks, everyone, for listening.